0: From the pages of The Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you The Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. In episode 39, rather than an article, we bring you the audio from our Q&A event at the WS Society in Edinburgh on the 19th of May. As with all our live events, we do the best we can with the available sound quality. Unfortunately, recording in large cavernous rooms means that you don't get studio-quality sound, but hopefully that doesn't detract from your enjoyment of the evening. This is part two of the evening's discussion, so if for some reason you haven't yet listened to part one, head back to iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your audio from and put that right. Now, back to our host for the evening, Daniel Gray.
1: Hello, thanks for coming back. I realised that I forgot to introduce myself earlier and I'm not Richard Gordon by any stretch of the imagination. I'm uh, Daniel Gray, uh, author of um, well-regarded, low-selling football books. Um, I'm going to start with a question about the Oros, because they're coming up, as I don't need to remind anyone in this room. Um, Jonathan, firstly, do international tournaments matter anymore now the club game is at the top is so rich, so big, so in-your-face, the Champions League, the Premier League, Bundesliga?
2: I I, I think they do. Um... You know, there seems to me no question that club football, the, level, you know, the quality of football played is way, way better than international football. And that's probably been the case since since the mid-80s, maybe even earlier, uh, that once um, football became systematised, once you you, you had to play as, as a team rather than as individuals, then obviously the, the greater time you have working together at club level means that those systems are going to be that much more sophisticated at, at club level. But I, I still think that, um, in a sense, the flaws of international football are are, are are its beauty, that if you have a generation in your country where you just don't have a good left back, you can't go out and spend 30 million in quid and, and, and buy one. You have to work out a way of getting around it. Um, if, you, you know, if the footballing gods have played one of those horrible jokes on you, and as, say, Cameroon found in the late 80s, when two of the best goalkeepers in the world were Cameroonian, um, with uh, Joseph Antoine Bell and Thomas M'Connor, uh, who are arguably the two greatest African goalkeepers of all time. And they both turn up in Cameroon at exactly the same time, and obviously you can only play one of them, and understandably <laughs> they come to hate each other. Um, and that's one of the great stories, one of the great narratives of football. Um, I thought you were going
3: to go to Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard yeah, for a second.
2: Well, that's, that's a very um, uh, insipid version of the same, same tale. <laughs> Um but, but I, I also think it it has an importance because the 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 there still is something nice about not playing for money. Um and maybe in Europe we, we see that less. Um but certainly if you go to the Couple of Nations or the Cup of America, uh the 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 level of interest in those games, the, the emotions those games stir. Is profound, and I'm not going to go through the whole Zambia story again because I, I tell it every time I'm on a stage. I mean, you, you were talking about uh, the Fulham Juve game when the whole press box wanted Fulham to win. The entire press box, apart from Yavorian's that night, wanted Zambia to win. I think the entire stadium wanted Zambia to win, and I, I've never known anything as emotional as that. And I don't think you could be quite that emotional about a club side. Um, so, yeah, I, I think international football style's a place, but it, it has to fight harder and harder for its place. And I'm not sure doing something like extending the tournament as they have with the Euros and making it a slog in the way the World Cup is a slog is necessarily the right way to do it. Do
1: these tournaments matter in France still? you know.
3: Uh, an awful lot, perhaps for different reasons. I mean, they matter because um, we want to show that we're capable of putting a good show together. Um, it's a great occasion, opportunity rather, uh, for, for Didier Deschamps uh, to re- rekindle, rekindle, excuse me, the um, love affair between the French public and the national team. And it's a completely changed national team. Uh, There's no Mathieu Valbrunner, there's no Karim Benzema. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And um, so we've got a very young, untainted team, which hopefully will make us forget about what happened beforehand, which is basically between 2002 and literally now. I mean, since, you know, France going to the World Cup in 2002. You remember how everybody was saying they've got the best goal scorer in Italy, David Trezeguet, the best goal scorer in France, Gibril Cissé, the best goal scorer in England. Thierry Henry was also golden boot that year. And we scored zero goals and were kicked out by Senegal, Denmark, and whatever. And Uruguay, with Thierry Henry getting a red card. And since then, there's been this um, um, this love story has gone sour. Particularly in South Africa, um, with Dominic and all these things, the strike. I mean, okay, they're French, they strike, it's quite normal, but. <laughs> um, but we ran the buses on time, usually. So the reason I was late today in Sunday was because of a French air traffic control I knew, and strike. I knew this was coming. <laughs> so, as far as we're concerned, this is the most important tournament in the history of the galaxy. Something like that.
1: And uh, are we ascribing too much importance and power to football, or, or can it help in France at the moment with, with things in society, if you want to?
3: Um, I think we should discuss this after. <laughs> and it's definitely not on the record. Uh, it might. Uh, yes, what are the... What is the odds? What are the odds? I, I was just asking... 3 to 1? Something like that? I think it's ridiculous. And, um,
1: well, so, so to Kevin and, and Alan, Scotland aren't there. People might be aware that Scotland aren't there, and Uh, the Englishman should probably shut up. Um, Alan, can Scotland qualify for a tournament again? The question on everyone's lips, all pundits' lips.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm sure they can, I'm sure they can. I I feel I've got a part to play. I'm cursed because I I started working at Scotsman in 98 and uh, thinking it's my dream job, I can't wait to be travelling to see Scotland in major major tournaments for (laughs) every every two years, every two years going on from there, and uh, yeah, here I am having not covered Scotland a uh, major tournament yet. But um, I, I, I do have hope. I do have hope. Um, uh, it was one interesting stat, I think, that, that I think Scotland had the, the oldest team average age in the, in the qualifiers, which uh, I think probably has to be addressed. I think Gordon Strachan a- already is addressing that. We've got some good, uh, I think, decent upcoming younger players coming through. Um, Kevin was talking about earlier, t- Tierney, full-back. And the squad that Gordon has announced for the next two games, friendlies Italy, Against Italy and France, um, does seem a bit younger in nature. So I mean it's interesting to see what Jonathan was talking about goalkeepers and how Cameroon had had two of the finest goalkeepers in Africa at one stage. We we seem to have you know, three of the finest Scottish goalkeepers all at the same time, unfortunately. We just need to we need to have someday, you know, a, a decent striker or or you know a, a world-class midfielder. I think that, that would that would make a lot of difference. You know, like, look at someone like Scott Brown, whose who's best days are possibly behind him. Um, you know, we just really need that, that talismanic figure, I think, just to, to lead us lead us into a tournament. And I, I just can't see it right now. Um, you know, someone like Lee Griffiths has scored forty goals in, in domestic league, but whether he can do it in a in an international sense, I, I, I do wonder. But but no, I I do live in hope. Um it was quite sore. I think I looked up Wikipedia, looking at the. Um, They've got a great thing. They've got a map of uh, the qualifiers for Euro 2016 for the finals, and it's, it's coloured in map. And this is a, it's a splurge of blue indicating the, the countries that have qualified, and then just and yellow is just these little tiny little dots of yellow that countries that haven't qualified. And there's Scotland at the top of the British Isles, and then Iceland, of course, is blue. And uh, that really kind of really that really hit home that we're we're not going, are we? <laughs>
4: I, mean, I know some way to speak up your own country, and you can overdo it. But I do think Scotland uh, played very well in that game against Poland. And uh, yes, they were knocked out in the last few seconds of the game. Uh, that doesn't mean Scotland are therefore hopeless and should be scattered to the winds. Um, I thought that was a pretty good effort. Uh, a horrible conclusion. But uh, I don't think Scotland uh, are demoralised or having to destroy everything they've done so far and starting again. They have good players in the team and they did quite well throughout that um, that attempt to reach the finals. Um, so, no, I didn't... I mean, I feel, I've seen worse than that in football and football <laughs> over the years. Um, I think maybe what's missing now is people don't don't seem to respond to any particular figure. I mean, for example, Joe Jordan was somebody that fans the whole crowd, you know... Uh, seem to love him because uh, he, he was so uh, such a leader and um he' ready to prepare put his body in and take all the heart that comes as a as a as a center center forward who also is a good player and um I think Scotland needs something like that in the attack. I don't really see a genuinely good center forward for international football, but um never you know these things just come one day a player suddenly if he gets more confidence and he gives a chance and the club lets him progress and maybe somebody else comes in um, because I don't think Gordon Strachan can just simply keep the same players. He um, can't find better ones but maybe you can find ones that are more potential that are still to be tapped and um, I think that would be the way to go.
1: Just sticking on the theme of Scotland Jonathan we were talking earlier I mean you know you grew up not too far from the border and yet the Scottish game was quite remote to you, and it was a similar experience to me. It was it was exotic, almost. Sort of, where is Saint Mirren? That kind of thing. <laughs> I've <laughs> been, <laughs> been twice. I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, and um, and yet, down the years, Scots played for all our best teams. There'll have been memories of, of Scottish players and managers at Sunderland and things like that. More just to, to bring some of those out for us, but also to talk about can that happen again? Has the has the influence of Scottish players rather than managers on the game? Gone forever. Well, I mean, it's, it's one of the things I think it's always worth remembering
2: when people complain about how few England qualified players are in the Premier League, which, um, although, strange, Hardy Amy's talked about it this year, but I think it's the lowest number ever. I think it's, it's down to 30% now. The 30? players in the Premier League are England qualified. 299 of, of starters. Th- uh, we'll Thank call you. it 30. <laughs> um, but you look back at the 1890s, you know. Uh, you know, the, the English league starts in 1888. You look, look at the 1890s, and the two dominant teams were Sunderland and Aston Villa. Both of whom had teams packed with Scots. You know, the, the, the great... There's only four managers in English history, English league history, who have won the league with, with more than one side. There's uh, most recently, Kenny leash Brian Clough, Herbert Chapman. The first one, who's the only one who's won it twice with more than one side, is Tom Watson, who won it three times with Sunderland, twice for Liverpool. And his big idea wasn't a tactical thing. His big idea was... Let's go shopping in Scotland, yeah. and so the Sunderland team that won the league in 1892, seven of the regular starting eleven were, were Scottish. So that influence is is profound, um, and it was, you know, back back in the 1890s, the place you looked for if you were English, the place you looked for exoticism, the place where you you, you know, you you plucked your your great talents off the shelf was was Scotland. No, no we're clearly never going to go back to that. I mean, there's just not to start with, there's not enough people in Scotland that. If you have a population of, what, five, six million, that's, you know, the the Cooper and Shumansky book um, looks at what what makes a successful national team. Uh, So it's down to, you know, it's down to sort of football history, how long you've cared about football. It's down to GDP and it's down to population. Countries with a population of five, six million are never going to be able to have a sustained run at the top of the game. Except Uruguay. Uruguay are, are, are the massive exception. I guess the Dutch and Croatia, maybe, you point to as being exceptions. But even Uruguay, I mean, although they're the most successful team in the Cup America, America, um, and although they regularly qualify for World Cups, so they, you know, they've had their... You know, the 90s were very bad for Uruguay. They didn't do anything in the 90s. And that was you know, when they had Francescoli. So yeah, I think yeah, it, it was always going to be declined from those days of the 1890s. But I think what's more worrying is that we've declined from the days of sort of the 70s and 80s that when I sort of grew up watching football, I yeah. looked at that Liverpool side with um, Hansen and Seamus and Dalgleish, and it was almost inconceivable that topping English side wouldn't have a Scottish core. And now, yeah, Scottish players sort of stand out. Yeah.
0: I, I remember interviewing Bobby Charlton, he was mentioning to me that when he was growing up, he came to Durham. Is that right? Where, where did Bobby Charlton? Bobby Charlton he grew in up in, in Ashington in, in Northumberland. Yeah, yeah Northumberland, wasn't it, yeah? And he said he, he used to look to. Look to, the hand, look to hand, look to the Scottish Cup final rather than the English Cup final, because they, for some, you know, the North, North England seem to look towards the Scottish Cup final, and he's, he, he watched him, you know, on TV, watched some great Scottish Cup finals, but I mean, is that something that you have experience of, and would you, oh, this Cup final weekend, I don't weekend think it was
2: ever on. I don't remember ever being on live, the Scottish yeah. Cup final, but certainly, you know, at half time, you get the highlights from the Scottish Cup final, um, and it's, you know, you're aware of this as being a thing of equal importance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just happened to be happening. I mean, if you grew up in Sunland, Glasgow is closer to you than London is. So, I think, and, you know, if you grew up in um I, I think of the 13 teachers at my primary school, four were Scottish. There was a huge Scottish influence because people came down to work in the shipyards. Um, there was a tradition, I mean, it sounds bizarre now, a tradition of people coming from, from Glasgow to, to the northeast to go on holiday. It was a regular holiday destination. Um, so, yeah, the, the influence was very, very strong, um, and certainly, I mean, this is something I, I hadn't even really thought of until uh, the referendum and everything last year, but I, I always felt profoundly British when I grew up, because so many people I knew, some of my teachers in my school, were, were
3: Scottish. Well, you could add, I mean, just uh, 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 Preston, North End, the Invincibles, I think their manager got eight players to come from Queen's Park, just employed them, and they were the first team to go through a whole season unbeaten in England. It was what, 1888.
1: Kevin, do you think uh, Scotland's not producing as many players? It's just a proportional thing. The, the English Premiership, as we're saying, is uh, 29.9, <laughs> et cetera. Is it, or is it, is it that thing there's no, no one's playing on the cobbles anymore? No one's out, that, that classic argument of the tannerball players and all of that? No,
4: I think uh, there's the yes, the tannerball thing's going. But on the other hand, they get f- far more scientific. Um, ways of coaching players and understanding the person and the style uh, in depth and um, so I, I don't think uh, at all miserable feel at all miserable about it i don't think um, scotland's maybe i mean you're not gonna have players like kids running around in the field uh, i found in the street rather than being in danger of being knocked over by cars so mm-hmm. now it, by dint of the culture we have you know we have to take people into to um, a- a- areas where they work, training grounds and so on, where they can be given uh, a sensible way of, to develop the talent, the talent that is innate within them at the moment. Um, but I'm not that that the, um, well, that depressed about it. The, the Celtic have uncovered a terrific player, Kieran Tierney, at left left at left back. And um, if they did, did that once every um, few years, it would help the club. The only problem is, look, like, as already people in like Tierney. I've been spotted on the, uh, by the English uh, Scouts, and uh, I don't think so to, it's a, it'd be crazy to, to leave the club. And he's so young, he's a, teen, a teenager, but uh, maybe the time maybe not be long before a club in England wants to buy him.
1: So maybe the question there should have been: Can Scotland qualify? Well, we still have gravel pitches outside Scotland, <laughs> and we want to go to audience questions now. I've got, I've certainly got one at the back that reserved his place at half time. We got ahead.
5: How you doing, lads? Um, it's more to the, the the Scottish-based guys, and hopefully the other guys can give me an opinion. Um, Scottish is struggling, as you've rightly said. There, um, I think personally, in terms of income, alcohol is a big thing. In Scotland, we are restricted to have a pint. You've invited 130 to 180 people in. You've invited us all to have a wee drink before, a wee drink at halftime, and nobody's wrecked the joint, which I'm thinking is damn good. So I'd like to ask you guys, is the, um, we, for those who don't know, we've been banned from alcohol since 1980, since uh, the cup final. And I'm just wondering... Do you think it's time, I mean, it would be a monetary thing to the clubs? As a fan who goes to Germany quite a lot, I've seen the the influence of alcohols on individual clubs. I just think it's about time we have a wee sensible approach on can
4: alcohol. I, can I just say that, that there is um, plenty of al- alcohol at the, at the grounds? However, they're behind curtains at half-time uh, in the uh, executive boxes. Believe me, there's plenty of drinking going on. The only person that can't get it, of course, is, is, is a natural fan with a season ticket who's got no chance of getting into the lounges unless he pays a lot of money. So uh, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy uh, in that side of the football.
0: Yeah, say, I mean, It is the mark of a mature environment, isn't it? Allowing people to drink and you can all have a good time of a few pints. But I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, Talking about Scottish football ills earlier, and the fact that we had this conversation downstairs at half time about alcohol, and I was asking the guys from England what exactly is the situation in, in England. But obviously, you can have a pint at half time on the, on the concourse, but not not in the, in the stands themselves. I mean, I don't know. I speaking very personally. I, I just don't. I don't go to football match and think, God, I wish I really wish I was having a pint right now at half time. I really wish I could go for a pint. I just don't. I, I you know maybe that's just because I've grown up and it's not been there. It's not been not been available to me. Um, so I mean it's not something that i I'm, I think you know is, is the most foremost in my mind to, to bring into Scottish football but it, it does seem to work in England it, it seems to work well and uh, you know whether you want a, a pint of sort of lukewarm lager at half time and I know that the quality is probably not not great either but um uh <laughs> you know I, I, it would be a good thing I'd be I'd be in favor of it but I, I just don't you know I don't find myself thinking you know it, it's foremost in my in my list of um, you know, things to improve Scottish football.
1: Jonathan, has it... Uh, I mean, what's the ale like at Sunderland at halftime? It's n- never the greatest.
2: I, I honestly don't think I've ever had a drink at halftime. I I, I, I I, just haven't. Um, I mean, there's certain press rooms... Actually, there's only one press room where you can drink now um, after an incident at Chelsea and they, they took that away. It's a very funny incident. <laughs> It was an incident we sadly can't can't talk about. Definitely it. Go off the record if this yeah. is uh, being talked um, about. But I mean, I, I sort of think the law in England, which is you, you can drink but not inside of the pitch, so you can drink on the concourse or in the executive boxes with the curtains closed. I think it actually works quite well because it forces people to have a have a break. And I, I think if you're if you're going to football and you feel you need a drink while watching it then that suggests that football is probably not great. (laughs) Um, And if you really can't... I mean, okay, I I get that um, it might be nice to have a drink at half-time, but if you really can't wait 45 minutes for a drink, then maybe you should be asking yourself some questions. No, not you, sorry. The (laughs) the,
3: the one thing I would say, Jonathan, is that it's really a question of... It's one rule for certain kind of people and one will fire others and that I think is morally totally unacceptable Uh, the fact is um, I for my sins I've been to some rugby union uh, over the past few years I I actually hate that game now I used to love it but (laughs) it's now huge big shit houses running towards each other but anyway the great thing about the rugby the great thing about the rugby uh, it's a bit of a surreal image the great thing about the rugby and the cricket where you have to say, Jonathan, and we've been to the cricket together, drinking is an essential part of the game. <laughs> it's the fact that rugby fans, who are no angels, actually behave pretty appallingly around at Twickenham, are allowed to have their pints of Guinness and whatnot at Twickenham during the game. No problem, nobody bats an eyelid. A bit in the same way that when you go and, you, you go and see um, a rock gig, you can bring your drink in, you go to a classical concert, no, sorry, sir, you can't do that. And that is disgraceful. Why should football fans be treated any differently from rugby union fans or cricket fans? And I don't get that. So either it's the same rule for everybody or football should be, um, you know, uh, or it should be prohibited in every single sport. It's not the case.
2: The the, the, the question was actually a bit forward of
1: the um, gentleman who asked the question. (laughs) Yeah, so we'll have that one now. The one we were going to have. That was about Leicester City. Right there you go. <laughs> I must say that I had when Gordon Strachan was manager of Middlesbrough, he needed about three small bottles of wine and two pints at half time. So <laughs> I'm all for it.
6: Okay. Well, uh, my question is again about the Euros. Um, obviously, Leicester won the league this year. That's you'd like to think that's encouraged a lot of the smaller teams at the Euros, the two Irish teams, uh, Iceland, Albania, to play a little more attacking a bit more freedom because I know a lot of fans I know especially are worried that the games are going to be shit because all The teams will want to do is avoid defeat rather than actually attack So do you think that will have any bearing and also secondarily do you think anybody can beat France?
3: Well, you can start with the, the secondary question. If no, you no like. France can beat France. There's absolutely no problem. <laughs>
1: Jonathan, will it be an overly defensive tournament
2: well I, I think one of the problems international football has um is what I was talking about before that uh i at club level coaches have so much more time to work with players um that you know if, if you're if you're, you' know, if you're working with a team, understandably the first thing you do is try and get the defense right because there's, there's an instinctive sort of self preservation there if you lose a game six 0 in a World cup, it will be remembered forever that will be you know, a stain that will, will shame your nation and will shame your name as a manager forever. That will not be forgotten. If you lose three games one 0 so what? Um so so managers understand to be trying to get the defence right first. And and maybe actually that's just the way you should build a team. You should you know you should start with you know having a solid base, how do we get the ball. Um but what it means is with less time to work on, on um uh, attacking formulations and I think it's something people often I, I think don't appreciate or forget that a lot of the way the Premier League teams or Champions League teams attack is it's not, not quite pre-programmed, but they, they have almost set moves that they, they adapt. Um, and I, I think in national level you just don't have time to to get the level of sophistication that you have at club level, whereas you do have time to get the defence right. So I think that's why you tend to see fewer goals in the national level. I think one of the other problems is that in this tournament, finishing third in the group for those three teams for those six teams. You finish third will go through and so you know if you if you get drawn a win you, you're, you're safe uh and, and that i think will lead to to caution in the early games and i think that that is a concern uh will the example of leicester inspire people i mean i i think if teams are inspired to play in a slightly more attacking way it's probably the example of qualifying rather than leicester that your qualifying was actually way way more interesting than i, I thought it would be i suspect more interesting than it will be in the future uh, and some of the uh, nations for whom this is a, a rare appearance at a major tournaments so in Northern Ireland or Iceland, maybe they will be inspired to, um, to sort of have a go and make it more memorable, but because yeah, I- Iceland actually played pretty attacking football in the qualifiers. Um, but then set against, like, got people like Romania who considered two goals in the ten games in qualifying, and that's not because they're a great side who bl- stopped the opposition from playing. It's because they're really defensive and really boring, and they're a terrible side. This is the worst remaining side in living memory, and somehow
1: they've qualified. It's awful. Okay, I'll take another audience question. Now, someone down at the front here. I saw your hand go up first there. Um, lad with the red top on, just. You never hear Dimbulbus say lad with the red top on. It's his Loss.
4: Hiya, lads.
1: Okay,
6: after Liverpool uh, scored a record number of goals in 2014, uh, then they lost Luis Suarez to transfer and. Daniel Sturridge was on long-term injury. So that's over 50 goals. Brendan Rogers still uh, still guided them to two semi-finals. One of them, uh Eden Hazard, went down very easily in the box at Anfield, and they lost one 0 on aggregate. They then the next summer lost Raheem Sterling and the club captain, Stephen Gerrard. So that's four players from I don't know, Some from the team that had almost won the league. Can Can you explain why Brendan Rodgers has since been treated as a leper in terms of uh, out-of-work managers? Coventry City record. and Brendan
1: Rodgers.
3: Straight to Philippe, he wants to go off the record. No, I, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment. No, no, no. Um, I think it was entirely ent- understandable. I mean, sometimes the fact a manager is sacked from a club has got nothing to do with the fact he's rubbish, it's just the fact that he's lost the dressing room or something has happened and you can feel the club is becoming stale You know, and I could actually rebound what you were saying about Kike Flores, I've actually been with um, some Watford fans recently on several occasions and they were all telling me it's funny because from the outside it looks like it's a crazy decision but we, from the inside, who go to the games every single time we felt that it was not quite working, qu- not quite ticking. We don't, you know, we don't hate him, we're not going to say he w- it was terrible, It was wonderful for us, but somehow it's run its course. In the case of Brian Rogers, it's a bit more complicated because I, I genuinely think the guy has got a serious ego problem, and um, which is probably being treated for. I mean, maybe being fired is a bit of a form of therapy for him. <laughs> and uh, maybe he'll come back stronger and taller. And um, when you're <laughs> when you're offered a chance, listen. If you're Liverpool, you get Jurgen Klopp, and you say bye bye, Brandon. Hello, Jurgen. I mean, come on, it's not really much of a choice. That that's, it's a decision. And he was treated perhaps not as well as you would have liked him to be. But it was fairly obvious from everybody at the ground, at the club, and also from without the club that it had run its course, and it was not just just not right. It was not happening anymore. And this again doesn't necessarily reflect on the talent or the personality of the manager, even if in the case of Brendan Rogers it might.
1: Right. Let's have some more audience questions. As we, I'll take one from right at the back there. So two questions for Philippe. Um, can you tell us about the Chelsea press room incident? <laughs> and second of all, uh, I are can. you. That
3: will be very short. Okay. Uh,
1: the second question was uh, Are you upset that Hatton Ben Arfa has not gone to the Euros?
3: Uh, I'm very upset that Hatton Ben Arfa is not at the Euros, but on the other hand, I'm very upset that many people are not at the Euros. But you've got to think of the amount of choice that Didier Deschamps had. Kevin Gamero is not in the French 23, he's on the waiting list. So that tells you a bit about the um, attacking potential in that French team. So I'm um, very disappointed for fighting Ben Alfa. who is a great guy, lovely footballer, and also has worked so hard at Nice uh, to, to go back into contention and managed to do it. He's been really one of the stars of this season in Ligue 1. So I'm very sad for him because I actually like him very much. On the other hand, you can completely understand the decision from, uh, from the Deschamps. That was the first thing. The second thing was what? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, a reporter whose name shall not be repeated. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. But you were there, I think, on that occasion. You were there. Okay. It was when Rafa was manager at uh, Chelsea. And Chelsea had the time (coughs) had a bar, a free bar, where they were serving um, three different kinds of wine. And... um, Actually, wine, which was not very good. I will always remember Carlo Ancelotti walking in a press conference, and you were there. And he said, somebody said, do you want a glass of wine? Ah, okay, all right. And so he gave it somebody. It was um, a chap from the Star, who's named Danny Falbrook, brought a, a, a glass of wine to, to Carlo, took a sip. It's shit. That was the beginning <laughs> of the press conference, one of the many reasons why we loved Carlo. Anyway, this particular reporter... <clears throat> Rafa is there, uh, and who is a quite a good customer. And the reporter asked the same question. Well, the, the reporter, I think, had not gone out for the second half. He'd, he'd uh, yeah, he'd, he'd remained
2: with a, a television pundit in the press room, whose name
3: shall not be repeated. And they, they had uh, availed themselves fully of the facilities. <laughs> and he kept asking the same question. And Rafa was answering it, and he kept answering the, the, same, the same question to it. It was just a bit embarrassing. It was not broadcast live, unfortunately. Um, but Chelsea, in their wisdom, decided, instead of banning the reporter, of banning the alcohol. She's dressed absolutely disgraceful. <laughs> and so since then, there's only been one club where it's possible to have a quiet drink after... You find a story, or in the case of before, and uh, I'm not, no, not Jonathan, never. No, well, the, no, n- almost never.
2: But um, Sunland after the Everton game last week, they uh, they laid out um, stripes of red and white wine in the press room. Wow! Uh,
3: which was a, a nice touch. And if you go to Osire, this is uh, which has got one of the crappiest buffets in the world. <laughs> not to be compared with chances, which is, a think, of magnificence. <laughs> Southern appeal in its opulence. Um, but what they have is they've got Chablis on tap. Literally on tap. Osser.
1: Well, the biggest revelation for me there was that the Daily Star has reporters. I just had no idea. <laughs> um, let's have another audience question. First was a very quick hand there. It was like Alan Shearer. Just to rebalance. Uh, two questions. Firstly, now we're in Edinburgh. How do the panel feel Saturday will go? Not FA Cup final, obviously. Scottish Cup. Second one is for Jonathan. I was down for the Everton game. Brilliant um, night. You think Coney's the best player ever to grace the Premier League? <laughs> Alan, Saturday. Hibs. <laughs> yeah. Um, surely now.
0: Surely the world is not so cruel. That they can, they cannot. That Hibbs cannot win the Scottish Cup this weekend. I think I counted. I think it is it 12 now. 12 Scottish Cup finals in a row that they've lost. Which, uh, yeah, that's pretty. That's something else. And then talking, of, talking of curses, football curses earlier. That has to be one of the worst, I think. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, my heart broke a bit for Alan Stubbs when he came into the press room. I was, I'm quite impressed that, and talking about press rooms in English football. We're, we're lucky to get a, Dundee United, for example. We've a the press room as a pantry that's turned into the press room. Just after the game for for half an hour, then we they were ushered out amongst the kind of half-eaten pies, etc. So, I mean, in I mean, awe of this uh, of English football, but um, but yeah, my heart broke when, when Alan Stubbs came in after the Falkirk game, and, and you know after Hibbs had lost a last-minute um, goal to lose that then playoffs. So, um, I just think I just think they've been Hibs have been abused too much over the years, and I think that this is going to be their weekend. So, uh, my prediction is. Hibs 2 Rangers one with a, a last-minute winner for Hibs to redress all those last-minute winners they've conceded recently.
4: <laughs> I, I wish I could agree with you, but you seem to be a real bit, bit downer, Hibs, you know, uh, failing to qualify and, and get promotion. Um, it's going to take um, a lot of effort to lift that, that Hibs gr- group. Do you really think they'll be winning that game?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I mean, look back at the the four games I've had in the league, Hibs have won two, Rangers have won two. It was that kind of uh, that petrifact cup game at the start, wasn't there? To the start of the season, which the uh, six-two I think it was to Rangers, but I think you can write that off. But no, I, I, Hibs have got good enough players. Certainly, it's obviously a, it's a case of whether Stubbs has been able to uh, to to rouse them this week, try and get them over the disappointment of last of last Friday night. Um, yeah, I think these players are going to be pretty pretty well steeled to do it, I think a lot of them possibly might not be back next season so I think this is their one kind of, they know it's their one chance to, to, to write themselves into history and that, you know, that really will be history, you know, 1902 is a long long time but and I, I know that because my team Dundee I mean, haven't won it since 1910 and yeah. I'm kind of hoping Hibbs win it so the spotlight falls on Dundee and so Dundee can get their act together and win I don't
4: have any sort of knowledge of who's going to win the final but, um, but yeah I mean I, I you couldn't, you couldn't sort of rule out, Hebs, could you,
2: Jonathan? Your niche question. Um, I mean, Lamine Kone, since he arrived in January, has very, very quickly become a cult figure, um, and, and I think some haven't really had a cult figure since since Hulu Arca, and Kone has, has filled that gap incredibly quickly because he's massive, <laughs> uh, good in the air, can and you know all of the sophistication in modern football for. The tactics and the conditioning and the nutrition and everything else. There's still something great about watching a man kick a ball really, really, really hard. <laughs> and those two goals he scored against Everton—one a volley from six yards—he hit really hard. And then one, just he could have, you know, he was three yards out with an open goal, but he made sure he kicked it really hard. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, he's not the greatest player to play in the Premier League ever.
5: <laughs> yeah.
1: But he can kick it really hard, and I like that. Right, let's take another audience question quickly. Um, this hand there was—I don't know—it's just a nice hand. I <laughs> can't really see that far, to be honest. sure you've got lovely hands. Thank, thank you very much. Um, in, in, in Scotland, uh, in the past few
4: years, obviously we've we've seen the the demise and now the resurrection of Rangers. Um, And in the time since Rangers have fallen away and then came back, somebody's actually assaulting me behind me here, is it? (laughs) Uh, um, Since they've they've gone away and came back, we've not seen anybody win the league or come close to winning the league apart from Celtic, which is obviously quite disappointing. Uh, As a a supporter of a smaller team, I was quite excited to see Rangers go away because it meant that we might see just a change to make Scottish football not very boring anymore. Um, Obviously, it's been quite disappointing that we haven't seen that. Um, can the panel comment on is 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 the death knell of Scottish football really now the fact that between Rangers demise and, and then winning it again in a few years time nobody's going to win it except from Celtic and is it as depressing as I think it is
1: when I got my notes to chair this I got uh, end on a cheery note as one of them so <laughs> <laughs> Kevin death knells death everything's terrible
4: Well, um, yeah, yes well, I mean, I mean that's, that's an intrinsically a Scottish perspective, isn't it? <laughs> Everything would <owed> doom. Because <laughs> that's what normally happens for Scotland. But uh, in this case, I, I, I think it's a very interesting Scottish Cup final. I mean, um, Rangers have come back through the, the up through the four divisions um, as 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 required by the SFA. Yes, Rangers. Rangers. Sorry.
3: Yeah. But there was that was cheap. Cheap shot.
4: I <laughs> mean, uh, it, it, people go on about this, but the fact is, Rangers are back in. They're playing the game. It's been sanctioned by everyone, and people like a laugh and point, point pointing point at, uh, point at this, get some fun out of the um, humiliation of Rangers, which was their own fault, of course. You know, by spending crazy money under uh, the chairman at that time. Um, and the worst thing about it was when Rangers worst spending enormous money, like 12 million for Tori Andrew Flo and so on. But um, the saddest thing about it was they spent all that money and didn't produce a team of any great standard in European football. Um, so I think it's, um, I hope that's a lesson learned. Uh, not many people could have found the money the Rangers did at that time. But uh, I'd much rather see teams playing, uh, buying players sensibly and having the knowledge to realize this guy might not look very good, but in six months or a year, he could really change our fortunes. And uh, to me, that's better than money. And uh, I think fans love that more, to see somebody they can identify with, not some stranger who's loaded with with Dosh.
0: I think it's possibly slightly unrealistic to... Expect because of Rangers' demise in the last four years to expect another team to come win the league. You know, Celtic have still got a huge budget. Celtic, I think, were always could only throw the throw the league away in the last in the last um, in the time since Rangers have, have been out of the league. Um, I mean, Aberdeen came fairly close, but just in in the final uh, analysis, they didn't just didn't have the players, did they? And I think last season we finished um, 18 points behind. Celtic so um, I mean, there's still a big gap but what I've enjoyed in the last three or four years is, is the domestic cups and, and clubs really having a chance to lift the domestic trophies and we've had St, St. Mirren, Ross County, uh, Inverness you know and I really think you know I, I've enjoyed that and it's been really quite refreshing for me and it's kind of really um, reignited my passion a bit to see these, sm- these smaller clubs um have their day in the sun and uh, um, you know who knows well, as I've seen this weekend whether Hibs can have it this this weekend but for me it's been great just to go to these towns like dingwall and um perth to see the st johnson bringing a cut back there that was a, an amazing afternoon to, to to be there and to, to witness that so yeah I've, I've really enjoyed it and i think it has been a bit more democratic last uh, three or four years in scottish football and uh, obviously rangers being back might change things a bit now uh, next year but um but yeah i don't know it's not quite been the, the armageddon that some people were, were talking about
4: what troubles me is the fact that uh, the, the alex Ferguson type. Uh, in his great days in uh, Aberdeen, uh, someday we have to do that again now to revive and make uh, Scottish football vibrant again, and that's a heck of a challenge. Uh, in those days, of course, um, you know the, the, the money being spent on players was nothing at all, really. But now, if a really good player came to Aberdeen, first thing would be plan how many, how many months, months before we sell them or maybe next summer or whatever that'll be the thinking not i think uh, getting back to the cup Winners cup that aberdeen uh, once did but th- i think that's the main question now get try and milk money out of uh, europe and i can understand that but it's, uh, it seems um, these teams do not believe they can qualify or, or compete at the top level
1: okay to uh, uh Chime that happy end note. I'm going to invoke violence. Awesome. Uh, this, is the, this is the city <laughs> of Graham Souness. Uh, who's the, the greatest hard the greatest and toughest player you've ever seen?
2: Well, I, th- I think hardness takes many forms, and it doesn't necessarily mean going around ending Sean Elliott's <laughs> career. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, we are talking about the main Kane. The uh, is Solomon's sort of um, uh, you know a cult figure who all fans love now. Uh, but when, you know, when, I, when I was sort of going regularly as in, in my teens the, the, the great cult figure was John Kay who was a, a right back we signed from Wimbledon, never scored a goal for Sunderland I think probably in retrospect wasn't actually a very good footballer um, and he was not a tall man but I guess he was only about five six five seven, quite a thin man but monstrously hard um, committed some horrendous tackles, horrendous fouls but it's, it's not just about dishing out, it's, um, he, he broke his leg in a game and was stretched off, and on the stretcher he, he sat up and pretended to be kayaking. Um, <laughs> but the, the real mark of the man was a, a preseason season tour, Sutherland did, in the mid to late 90s, uh, down in the southwest, somewhere around Bristol. And um, they, they went to, to a pub after a game, and some local hard lad decides he'll have a pop at John Kay, he'll have a pop at the you know the, the, the hard man of of um I guess would have been a second division team then the championship team. And this bloke's massive. So Kay's you know, never gonna be able to actually have him in a fight. So Kay says to him, right, um if you really think you're hard, follow me follow me to the toilets. So the bloke's okay, follows him to the toilets. And Kay goes in. And he reaches into the urinal and takes out, you know, those blue antiseptic cubes. Because if you're really hard, you'll do this. And puts them in his mouth and eats them. Oh. So, yeah, John Kay, the... Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I told you it always comes back to Duncan Ferguson. and Here he I can safely say Duncan Ferguson's the hardest player I've seen. But, but no, one of the great stories of Duncan Ferguson, I remember, is... Uh, the, um, the time these two burglars, probably the most foolish burglars ever known in the history, in the history of, of burglary. It was the two guys that chose Duncan Ferguson's house to, to burgle one night. And uh, unfortunately, Duncan was at home and he, and he, he came down and, and caught them at it. And one of them, one of them was he, you know, had his arms full of, I think, bottles of champagne, man of the match champagne and various other um, quarry from 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 Duncan's kind of um, um, man shed or whatever it was. And uh, and so this guy looks up and sees Duncan sort of towering over him, and, and says, "Oh, sorry, sorry, Duncan, sorry, Duncan." Uh, you know, and, put, and put the put these goods down in front of him, saying, so you, "You can have it back. You can have them all back." And Duncan just looked at him and said, "It doesn't work like that." <laughs>
1: <laughs> Kevin, the hardest man, perhaps perhaps a man from the Midlothian coalfields, I imagine.
4: Well, I mean, uh, to speak of the h- toughest players, Dave Mackay, um, terrible injuries and kept on coming back. And uh, 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 obviously, it, it later on, becomes a, a centre-back kind of figure uh, because his body is not going to be able to run up and down the pitch. But to, 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 in his mind, to change the way he's got to play the game, I thought his courage is both psychological and physical. And um, I think he should always be remembered.
5: Do you know what the,
2: uh, what, obviously he was a, an enormous figure at Derby uh, when, when they won the league, mm. but do you know what, the, what Derby gave him as a retirement present? So after his final game, as a presentation on the pitch, in which he's given this great gift to say thank you for these, what well, three or four years he spent there, but, you know, transformed them as a club. They gave him a toaster. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's practical. <laughs>
2: I, I don't know if he kind of hadn't had a toaster and was sort of... Yeah, I'm going to have to go down to, to the shops and buy a toaster. I always give him one, but.
3: <laughs> Is there some kind of joke we're missing there? Was there some kind of innuendo in this? I don't know. I mean, or your toast. That's it. Oof,
1: A, r- a rare item in, in Derbyshire in the 1970s. Mm-hmm.
3: Philippe, finally. Um, well, my first reaction was to say Kevin Muscat because he was a psycho. But um, we'll have to finish on a a very Blizzardian reference to the man who has the most red cards to his uh, credit in the history of football, and uh, who is from Colombia.
2: The Uruguayans must be furious.
3: Absolutely. He's from Colombia. He's called Gerardo Bedoya, and he's got 46 in his career. (laughs) And uh, he recently became a manager, and... (laughs) Yes.
2: So, 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 so think about it. 46 red cards. So let, let's assume they're evenly split between two yellows and you know, violent colors. No, it was so, a
3: violent chap. So most of them were actually straight reds. <laughs> straight so reds. None of this Ponzi thing like one so, yellow, two yellows. Yeah. Ah, no, no, not Vardy. No, proper <laughs> red cards.
2: And, and presumably he was getting multiple red cards a season. So he'd be getting hmm? the second one would be a four-game ban. The third will be five. So he's saying he's probably missed on average. Let's say a three-game ban for each one. Yep. Forty-six, he said. So that's forty-six. Yeah. Uh, one hundred and thirty-eight games.
3: <laughs> that's that's four seasons. Yeah. That, that that's more than Jack Wilshere has been playing. <laughs> and uh, and so he became manager. is this year actually. Uh, and uh, his first game, he was sent off after twenty-three minutes. So I think he's a hard chap which brings us beautifully to the end so if you could give your thanks to Jonathan Alan,
1: Kevin and Philippe